Blog Talk Radio. again, we're coming to you live from the Eastern Radio Show Studio in St. Augustine, Ponte Vedra, Florida. And thanks so much for listening to Eastern Airlines Talk Radio. My name is Neil Holland, the producer of the show, and we have another great show for you tonight. And to all the listeners around the world, we say welcome. Join us as we celebrate the life of Eastern Airlines every Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Hello, Eastern family and friends. As our producer said, it's great having you with us. My name is Chuck Albright. I'm filling in. I'm hard. Traveling from his home in Virginia. He's home in West Palm Beach. He's taking his time. And we're sure he's visiting friends along the way. Be safe, Jim. I'm coming to you live from my home in the villages in central Florida, where the weather today was 90 degrees and sunny, and tonight it'll be about 70 degrees. Welcome, and thank you for listening and calling the show. You have truly made us the radio voice of Eastern Airlines. In fact, we can now say we've become Eastern Airlines International Radio Show with over 50 countries listening in. So we'll simply just say, hello world. We'd love to hear your comments and share your memories with the radio listeners from around the world during the broadcast. If you haven't called a show before, all you need to do is call 213-816-1611 and just say hello to talk to us on the air, live every Monday evening. We can identify many countries from around the world who listen in with our Blog Talk Radio application, isn't it great that we can keep the Eastern legacy going out not only to the Eastern family, but to listeners from many different countries around the world? That's what we try to do every week on the Eastern Radio Show. Won't you join us by adding your voice to these broadcasts? Our thanks also to those who choose to listen by the computer using our radio icon on our home page at www.easternradioshow.com, or perhaps by signing in in the site of our provider, Blog Talk Radio, at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. Remember to abbreviate the word Captain to C-A-P-T. Should you wish to talk during our live broadcast, feel free to use our call-in number, 213-816-1611, 
at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Let me repeat the number so you can write it down for your Monday night visit, 213-816-1611. By the way, tell your friends about us. Our membership is growing, and now we're over 1,025. Wow, that is a real nice group. Don't forget, you can listen in to any of our 430 Monday night broadcasts and 100-plus Thursday broadcasts by simply going to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. That's Captain Eddie. Scroll down through the archives of the broadcast. Each episode is briefly described, and we're over 500 episodes now, including the Eastern Airlines Music and History. Our lines are always open for calls, and if you choose not to participate and talk live with our hosts, we'd ask you, please mute your phone, as the producer does not have the capability of filtering out background noises. I see we're number one for takeoff, so Captain, let the Eastern Flight 433 end the air. Tower Blue, 650, bolt tip up. 17 that crashed at Bradley Airport, killing all seven on board. Bradley Ground, this is Boeing 9201, to the B-17 in Air. We have a clearance. We'd like a local VFR uh, to the eastbound. And if we could, we would like uh, the intersection of runway 33 and 6. November 012, Bradley Ground, uh, runway 6 at 33 for an intersection departure. Taxi on Echo. Runway 33, three, hold short of runway 6. Right, right. Echo to 33, three, right on 33, three, hold short of 6. Thank you, 012. Thank, thank you much. Uh, Southwest 197 with you. Southwest 197, Bradley Ground, taxi to ramp on Echo. Taxi slow and you'll see a uh, super fortress. Let them join in front and then cross runway 33. Three. All right, slow on Echo and then uh, follow super fortress, cross runway 33, three, Southwest 197. Is the fortress passing through or giving rides? Giving rides. Number 012, what's your weight class category? Uh, we're about 44,000 pounds. We don't carry bombs anymore. Yeah, you're going to have about a, for safety, we'll have a three-minute wait there for two uh, jetliners to go. Hey, not a problem. we got a little bit of a warm-up anyway. It takes about a minute and a half, two minutes. 
Even better. Call tower when you're ready. Will do. Thanks for your help, man. We sure appreciate it. Tower Boeing 93012 is ready for takeoff. Boeing 93012, Bradley Tower will be about uh, two more minutes. Hold for wake turbulence. 93012, hold for short. Remember, 903012, wind light and variable at 3. Turn right, heading 095, runway 6 at runway 33, clear for takeoff. Right to 095, clear for takeoff, 93. November 903012, contact departure. 93012. Uh, Boeing 93012, we'd like to return to the field. November 93012, sorry, second. What's the reason for coming back? Sir? We got number four engine, we'd like to return to Boeing. 0012, Roger, you can proceed uh, onto the downwind for runway six, and you said you need an immediate landing? We didn't get a chance, yeah. Or zero one two. So I just want to make sure because we have jet traffic coming in. Do you can you go by or do you need to be on the ground right now? Awesome. Piedmont forty eight thirty seven. Cancel approach clearance. Climb maintain three thousand. Climb maintain three thousand. Piedmont forty eight thirty seven. We'll stay on this present heading. Or zero two. You could uh, proceed however necessary for runway six. Okay, if entering is downwind for runway six nine three zero one two. Roger, whoever's calling, just stand by for a second. Tower uh, Boeing 93012 is entering the downwind for 06. Remember 93012, Bradley Tower, wind calm, runway 6, clear to land. 93012, clear to land, F6. Remember 93012, uh, uh, how's your progress for runway 6? We're getting there. Field downwind now. Ground Saratoga, 74 Whiskey, Whiskey, Pack Air South, is uh, runway 33 available for departure? Negative, sir, it is closed. Okay, we're ready to taxi 74 Whiskey Whiskey. Number 74 Whiskey Whiskey. Uh, it's going to be runway 6 eventually. What I want you to do, we have a situation going on. Taxi 3, then taxi on Sierra, short of taxiway pop out. Okay, we're going to taxi on Lima, cross 33, right on Sierra, and then we'll hold short of uh, pop up for 74 Whiskey Whiskey. Early ground, state six, the airfield, the uh, Bradley Airport is closed at this time. Roger. Bradley Tower to all responding vehicles, no matter where you are, proceed to the craft via the quickest way available. Proceed. Proceed 12, uh, Fortex, hit in runway 24. All responding vehicles have to the crash site, quickest way possible. 74 Whiskey, Whiskey, stop. Whiskey Whiskey, airport's closed, same tensions. Four Whiskey Whiskey, make a 180 and taxi on Sierra uh, Lima, cross 33. Hey, American, uh, 622 is uh, just uh, prior to pushback for our time for Charlotte. American 622, unfortunately, airport's closed for now. I'll have more information later. Oh, Roger. And it is, is that one of the uh, vintage aircraft over there? Yeah, they crashed. Ground, good afternoon, Falcon 1982 Charlie's at uh, Taxi Lane, Mike Taxi with India. Sir, the airport is closed for an aircraft accident, sir. Indefinite closure. Okay, thank you. 6.2. Yeah, do you know which airplane that was? It was a B-17. Well, that was uh, the transmission between 
the B-17 and Bradley Tower. And um, you heard, I don't know if you guys have heard that before, Bill Joseph sent it over, and I thought we'd play it. And uh, remember those that perished in that crash. Uh, any comments from our host or our listeners? Uh, I believe that everyone on board was killed. Is that right? I, I thought initially they said there were survivors, Seven but then I heard there wasn't any. Seven people killed and six others on the airplane were injured, along with two people on the ground. Oh, so they were survivors then? Yes. Okay. When was this? This was, uh, what, last week? Uh, Two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Well... Uh, the only thing I had heard on that was he uh, there was something that happened when he was coming in on that runway that uh, he uh, the, the approach lights were clipped by that airplane before uh, the crash incident. So evidently he when he clipped the lights for whatever reason that was uh, he may have may have lost his uh, some kind of directional control that happened that. Uh, whatever damage on the bottom of the aircraft from those lights is uh, what caused the crash. And that has yet, nobody has come forth with any information any further that I've heard about. No. He was trying to make a 30-minute fly around, as they called it, during the Foundation's uh, Wings of Freedom tour. Well, uh, we talk about... uh, accidents and uh, of course our show tonight deals with an accident that happened a few years back and and we're going to talk about that tonight so uh colleen would you start us off uh, okay the missing okay, I have one. yeah go ahead. I have one. Uh, i'm new listener on this uh i'd like to talk to you guys today uh my wife and i were in that b-17 when it was in leesburg uh, a couple of years ago, it was with the uh, the B-24 and the uh, Mustang that was down there. I don't know whether you guys had ever gone down to that show or not, which was really terrific. We had gone through that uh, B-17. Remember that joined Neil, uh, Robert Frister. Yeah. Go ahead, Robert. Continue. Okay. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, we had gone through the airplane, uh, talked to the crew. Uh, I'm not sure it's the same crew that was up in Hartford, but uh, for some reason my memory serves me that uh, you know I'm not sure it was a B-24 had an engine problem uh, where they couldn't fly it, or the B-17. But again, I'm going back about two, three years ago. And it's unfortunate that the accident happened. Unfortunately, yeah, uh, they are very popular flights when they do tour the country. Uh, I've seen them several times at different airports, like. Sun and Fun in Lakeland, Florida, and, and uh, uh-huh. other uh, air shows, and and uh, so thank you very much, Robert, and uh, welcome aboard. Uh, Appreciate that. Member. Thank you. Yeah, like to have you back here often. So, Jim, would you uh, introduce our show? I'm sorry, I took control there. Yes, uh, let's turn our attention now to the motivation flight. Uh, MH370, Colleen. 
The missing Malaysia Airlines plane, flight MH370, had 239 people on board and was en route from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing on March 8, 2014, when an air traffic control staff lost contact with it. The search for the plane eventually focused on a 46,333-square-mile area of seabed, about 1,242 miles off the coast of Perth in the southern Indian Ocean. It has now been suspended with no trace of the aircraft found there and is likely to remain the world's greatest aviation mystery. Don, what happened the day the plane disappeared? Well, Colleen, at uh, 0041 a.m., 8 March 2014, Malaysia Airlines Flight MH370 departed from Kalua M4 International Airport and was due to arrive in Beijing, China at 0.30 in the morning. <coughs> Excuse me. Malaysia Airlines says the plane lost uh, contact within a, a half hour after takeoff. No distress signals or message was sent. At 0107, the plane sent its last aircraft communications address system reporting system, or ACARS transmission, a service that allows computers on board the plane to talk to computers on the ground. Sometime afterwards, it was silenced, and the unexpected 137 transmission was not sent. Uh, Don, the final cockpit communication reveals the last conversation with the ground was this, at 0119. The last communication between the plane and Malaysian air traffic control took place about 12 minutes later. At first, the airline said initial investigations revealed the co-pilot said, quote, all right, good night. However, Malaysian authorities later confirmed the last word heard from the plane spoken by either the pilot or co-pilot were, in fact, good night, Malaysian 370. A few minutes later, the plane's transponder, which communicates with ground radar, was shut down as the aircraft crossed from Malaysian air traffic control into Vietnamese airspace over the South China Sea. At 012-run, the Civil Aviation Authority of Vietnam said the plane failed to check in with air traffic control in Ho Chi Minh City. At 0215, almost an hour later, Malaysian military radar plotted Flight 370 at a point south of the Kutat Island in the Strait of Malacca, west of its nice long, nice known location. The military radar logs also confirmed that the plane turned west and then north over the Danam Sea. In maps accompanying its 1 May, May 1st report, the Malaysian government revised the time to be 02.22 and put the position for the West. Dorothy? Yes, Jim. At 02.28, which is 1.828 GMT time, 7th of March, after the loss of radar, a satellite above the Indian Ocean picked up the data from the plane in the form of seven automatic handshakes between the aircraft and a ground station. The first was at 0228 local time. At 0811, 
0011 GMT time on the 8th of March. The last full handshake was at 0811. This information, disclosed a week after the plane's disappearance, suggested that the jet was in one of two flight corridors, one stretching north between Thailand and the other between Kazakhstan, the other south between Indonesia and the southern Indian Ocean. At 0819, however, there is some evidence of a further partial handshake at this time between the plane and a ground station. This was a request from the aircraft to log on. Investigators say this is consistent with the plane's satellite communication equipment powering up after an outage, such as after an interruption to its electrical supply. At 0915, this would have been the next scheduled automatic contact between the ground station and the plane, but there was no response from the aircraft. Colleen, can you tell us more about the search? Yes, sir. I think the plane's planned route would have taken it northeastwards over Cambodia and Vietnam, and the initial search focused on the South China Sea, south of Vietnam's Tay Mau Peninsula. But evidence from a military radar revealed later suggested the plane had suddenly changed from its northerly course to head west. So the search, involving dozens of ships and planes, then switched to the sea west of Malaysia. Now, further evidence revealed on March 15, 2014, by the Malaysian Prime Minister, Najib Razak, suggested the jet was deliberately diverted by someone on board about an hour after takeoff. After Flight 370's last communication with a satellite was disclosed a week after the plane's disappearance, the search was expanded dramatically to nearly 3 million square miles, about 1.5% of the surface of the Earth. However, from March 16, tracking data released by the Malaysian authorities appeared to confirm that the plane crashed in the Indian Ocean southwest of Australia, with possible locations refined following further satellite analysis. Chuck? Colleen, there's, uh, there were a few false positives along the way. In early April of 2015, uh, Australian and Chinese vessels using underwater listening equipment detected ultrasonic signals, which officials believe could be coming from the plane's black box flight recorder. The pings appear to be the most promising lead so far. Then it were used to define the area of the seafloor search conducted by the Bluefin 21 submersible robot. Nothing was found, and only on December 2015 that the Australian officials said they had refined the search area and were confident that they were looking in the right area for the airplane. In the end, the Australian-led search using underwater drones and sonar equipment deployed from the specialist ships loaned by various nations combed a vast 120,000-kilometer area of the southern Indian Ocean, but turned up nothing. In December 2016, investigators admitted the plane was unlikely to be in the search area and recommended searching further north. But Australia ruled, ruled out continuing the search 
beyond its scheduled end. Jim? Yeah, Chuck, un- although the underwater search turned up nothing, it was along a coastline thousands of miles away that clues began to wash up on the beaches. On July 29, 2015, a six-foot piece of plane debris was found by volunteers cleaning a beach in San Andre on the northeastern coast of Reunion. On August 5th, Malaysian Prime Minister Najib Razak announced that investigators had conclusively confirmed that the debris was from the missing airplane. This search finding was confirmed by the French officials. However, officials did said this did not affect their search plans that the debris had been carried through Reunion by ocean current. It was the first of more than 20 pieces of possible debris found by members of the public on the African coast and islands in the Indian Ocean. On November 2016, a report found the recovered wing flaps on the plane was not in the landing position. The flaps were up when the airplane went down in the Indian Ocean. That was a significant finding that helped investigators say with more certainty that the flight most likely made a rapid and uncontrolled descent into the Indian Ocean. So some bereaved families of those on board of the flight are determined to keep the hunt for these clues going. And now we take a look at some of the theories that have been put forth on the mystery of MH370. Don, what do you have on these theories? Uh, yeah, Jim, <clears throat> excuse me, half a decade from its disappearance, while rumors continue to circulate about the fate of Malaysia Airlines jet, in over five years and seven months following its disappearance, no sign of MH370 has yet been found. Yet, its fate remains a mystery and it has spawned cl- countless conspiracy therapy, ther- theories. A final report from the Malaysian authorities published failed to provide any concrete conclusions about the reasons why the plane disappeared or any indication where the wreckage might be. MH370 vanished on 8 of March 2014 with 239 passengers mostly Chinese nationals on board, during a routine flight from Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia to Beijing, China. Sure. Don, its disappearance prompted one of the biggest search missions in history. He had a four-year, multi-million-dollar joint operation by Australia, Malaysia, and the Chinese investigators failed to find any sign of the airplane. What happened to flight MH370 has become one of the world's greatest aviation mysteries. The huge gap in reliability information about the aircraft's fate have been filled with suggestions from armchair sleuths, aviation experts, authors, and conspiracy theorists. There are some of the wildest theories on how and why MH370 disappeared. Copilot flew ghost plane alone for the hour. One of the most recent theories suggests that the plane may have suffered a sudden cabin depressurization that killed everyone on board except the co-pilot, who flew on alone for hours before crashing the plane. Jim? Okay, Chuck. Aviation experts Justine Negrani believes that the Boeing 777 Captain Sahari Ahmad Shah 
may have been on a break at the time when co-pilot Farik Abdul Hamid at the controls. The sudden lack of oxygen would have killed all the passengers and crew within 15 minutes. However, Hamid was insulated from its worst effects in the cockpit, says the Daily Mirror. The Grinding told the Daily Star that while still alive, Hamid's oxygen-starved brain would have led him to make a series of bizarre decisions explaining the erratic route it took after losing contact just before finally ditching somewhere in the Indian Ocean. The oxygen available for the passengers for about 15 minutes. So the passengers were all dead. There was no sense they were resuscitated. They were dead long before the plane hit the water, she says. Colleen. Jim, another theory is that it was shot down. In mid-March, an Australian man made the sensational claim that he had found the wreckage of MH370 using Google Earth. Peter McMahon, a mechanical engineer and amateur crash investigator, spent years combing the Indian Ocean on Google Earth looking for the plane. According to Mr. McMahon, the wreckage of the flight, which he claims is riddled with bullet holes, is located just a few miles south of Round Island, which is governed by Mauritius in an area of the ocean that has not been searched by crews, the Daily Mail writes. McMahon took his claims one step further, the site adds, by saying that he also believed U.S. officials were refusing to search the area and were withholding information from the public. They have made sure that all information received has been hidden from the public, even our government, but why, he told reporters. They do not want it found as it's full of bullet holes. Finding it will only open another inquiry, he added. The Malaysian Transport Minister, Liao Xiong Li, has rubbished McMahon's claims and said that the images McMahon circulated had also been analyzed by Civil Aviation Authority Malaysia, CAAM. Now, that organization has found McMahon's claims to be baseless, the New Straits Times reports. Hence, the people should not be taken for a ride on that matter. John? Colleen, what happened to flight MH370, which disappeared mid-flight in March 2014, has become one of the world's greatest aviation mysteries and a huge gap in reliable information about the aircraft's fate has been filled with suggestions from armchair sleuths, aviation experts, authors, and conspiracy theorists. Now, here are some of the wildest theories on how and why MH370 disappeared. Don, one was that it was a remote cyber hijacking. In his book, Beneath Another Sky, A Global Journey into History, respected writer and historian Norman Davies says technology designed to prevent another 9-11-style terror attack by allowing planes to be controlled remotely could have have been exploited by cyber spooks. He suggests MH370, which was equipped with Bowen's Honeywell uninterruptible autopilot on board computer, could have been hacked and then reprogrammed and flown to a secret location. He told the Sunday Times the plane might have been carrying sensitive material or personnel to Beijing, 
making it the subject of two kidnap attempts. There were reports that the cargo detailed in the manifest didn't add up. I don't know what it might have been carrying, but it may have been carrying something somebody didn't want to get to China. Because of this, Davies suggested that the plane could have been remotely kidnapped by a hacker, and then a second hacker or remote controller took it over. The first kidnap was by the Americans who wanted to stop the plane getting to Beijing and planned to divert it to Diego Garcia, which was a U.S. naval base in the Indian Ocean. And then somebody hacked it to stop it from getting there, he said. Several other theories back up this possibility, pointing to the widely held belief that the official cargo manifest detailing what was actually on the Boeing 777 was wrong, says the Daily Mirror. And while it seems taken straight out of a modern-day spy film, a similar theory has been tooted before. Back in March 2014, just days after the plane went missing, the Sunday Express reported that hackers could have accessed the aircraft's flight computer using a mobile phone and reprogrammed the speed, altitude, and direction. It could then be landed or made to crash by remote control. The papers suggest that, and it may be worth noting that the woman who came up with the theory runs her own company training businesses and governments to counter terrorists and we know that for a fact. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, Dorothy. Another theory was uh, cracks in the plane. Perhaps most prosaic, yet also the most believable theory as to why the plane went down does not sun around a conspiracy at all, but well-documented faults with the airplane that could have led to crashing. Six months before the plane disappeared, the U.S. Aviation Watchdog warned airlines of a problem with cracks in the Boeing 777 that could lead to a mid-air breakup or a catastrophe drop in pressure. The Federal Aviation Administration issued a final warning just two days before MH370 disappeared after one airline found a 15-inch crack in the fuselage in one of its airplanes. Now, however, the Daily Mirror claims Boeing said that the FAA alert did not apply to the missing jet because it did not have the same antenna as the rest of the Boeing 777s, further fueling compensatory theories. Jim, this next theory fits right into our program on October 28th about the Bermuda Triangle, except uh, I think we'll call this the Asian Bermuda Triangle, one of the most popular theories on the social media is the idea that it could be a second Bermuda Triangle somewhere in the Indian Ocean, explaining MH370 sudden disappearance. A number of planes and boats have gone missing in an area of the North Atlantic known as the Bermuda Triangle over the years, including five torpedo bombers that was mysteriously vanished there in 1945. In a bid to back up with the hypothesis, some people, including one Malaysian minister, pointed out that the area where MH370 vanished is on the exact opposite side of the globe as the Bermuda Triangle. Unfortunately, these people are wrong. The exact opposite side of the globe is closer to the Caribbean than Bermuda, the Sunday Times noted. Colleen? 
And uh, Chuck, another theory, another theory is that the pilot wanted to create the world's greatest mystery. Now, I still <laughs> like DB Cooper. I still like DB Co- uh, Cooper and Amelia Earhart over this one. A former Australian Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, says he believes flight MH370 was brought down intentionally by a pilot who wanted to, quote, create the world's greatest mystery, unquote. Speaking ahead of the third anniversary of the plane's disappearance, he said, I have always said the most plausible scenario was murder-suicide, and if this guy wanted to create the world's greatest mystery, why wouldn't he have piloted the thing to the very end and gone further south. Then there was the analysis that suggested there might be a prospective place to the north. Search teams considered murder-suicide early on in their investigations, but there was little to no evidence uncovered to support it, the Adelaide Advertiser says. However, investigative journalist Mark Williams Thomas does support the idea and says the fragments of evidence so far discovered point to an intentional act by the pilot. Don? Well, how about this one, Colleen? (laughs) North Korea took MH370. It didn't take long for the most secretive nation in the world to be dragged into the 370 rumor mill. Shortly after the plane disappeared, several conspiracy theories questioned whether North Korea might be mislinked in the mystery. They pointed to South Korea's claim that North Korea nearly took out a Chinese plane carrying 220 passengers on the 5 March 2014, with Chinese Southern Airways reporting uh, passing through a trajectory of a North Korean missile just seven minutes after it was fired. Three days later, 370 disappeared. While some think... Mm. Pyongyang shot down the plane. Others think it might have been hijacked and diverted to North Korea. Mm. One anonymous aviation worker told E-Turbo News Group that somebody out there wanted a really, really huge airplane (laughs) and that they were most likely after the Boeing 777's technology. Would Supreme Leader Kong Jong-un go that far? Kidnapping and human trafficking has always been a part of North Korea's scary agenda, said Nelson Akantara, ETN editor-in-chief. One Rebit uh, user claimed the perfect place to perform a hijack would be over the sea soon after takeoff. The North Korean government is (laughs) that shit crazy, (laughs) Got that, right? No telling what crazy logic they might have had for taking the plane. That's a tough one to follow, Jim. Well, I'll try. Well, Bond, could the plane have been shot down by the U.S. military? A French former airline director who was investigating the disappearance of flight MH380 has claimed that the missing plane was shot down by an American fighter jet who feared that it had been hijacked and was about to be used to attack the U.S. military base on the Indian Ocean Atoll of St. Diego's Garcia. Mark Dugain, who once 
ran French Airlines Proteus said that he had been warned not to look too closely into the case of MH350 by a British intelligence officer who told him he was taking, quote, risk, end quote, according to France Inter, whatever that is. Dugan had traveled to Maldives and interviewed witnesses who reportedly told them they had seen a huge plane flying at a really low altitude toward the island, island bearing Malaysian airline colors, the independent quotes. They got some really screwy stuff going here. Several months ago, a book called Flight MH370, the mystery suggested that MH370 had been shot down accidentally by the U.S. Thai Joint Strike Fighters in a military exercise in the South China Sea. The book also claims that search and rescue efforts were deliberately sent in the wrong direction as part of the cover-up. This the Daily Mail reports. Mike? Yeah, and Jim, there was a case of the murdered diplomat. The most recent addition to the ranks of MH370 conspired theories surrounds the death of a Malaysian diplomat who had spent years investigating the crash. In September of this year, honorary Malaysian consul in Madagascar, Zayed Rezad, was shot dead in Madagascar's capital, if I get all these fancy names here. Uh, Anton Anton Avario in a apparent assassination. Uh, amateur U.S. flight investigator Blaine Gibson, who worked for Raza in tracking down debris from the from the plane, told Malay Mail that the diplomat quote appeared to have been specifically targeted and claimed that he was also a recipient received death threats. Uh, Doctor Victor Ian Nello an original member of the independent group of specialists that helped the Australian investigators try to pinpoint the plane's crash site in the southern Indian Ocean, said in the timing of Reza's assassination just days before he was due to deliver several new pieces of debris of the Malaysian to the Malaysian Ministry of Transport, makes possible link to MH370 even more suspicious. Yet others have sought to debunk the connection between Raz's death and his search for the missing plane. French-language news website Zinfos 974 has had suggested that the diplomat was a marked man along before meeting Gibson and speculated that he was killed as a payback for the alleged involvement in a 2009 abduction of several residents of Indonesian Pakistani descent known as collect, known collectively as the Karens. However, Dr. Ilano Inano Inanalalo, if I got that right, has contested <laughs> these claims saying no evidence of his involvement with the Karens was found. Writing in his blog, he went on to say that this could be disinformation. Ha ha to distract attention away from the real motive behind the shooting. He went on to add that it was it was surprising that the assassination of Mr. Raza has been with stone silence with, by both Malaysian and France, despite the ties of both countries. Chuck? Well, Neil, I think uh, life insurance scams are always considered. In March 2014, Malaysian police 
refused to rule out the possibility that the entire incident may have been a complicated insurance scam. Maybe somebody on the flight had bought a huge sum of insurance who wants family to gain from it or somebody who has owed somebody so yeah. much money, you know, they're looking at all the possibilities in Tansuri, Malaysian Inspector General of the Police. At the time, authorities said they would consider all possible motives, no matter how unlikely they seem, and would investigate all passengers and crew for any unusual behavior. We're looking very closely at the video footage taken at the Coleman Lampar International Airport, he added, and we're studying the behavior patterns of all the passengers. <laughs> Rod Serling. <laughs> don't look out the Can't window, take folks. Can't take <laughs> don't don't look out the window. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. Chuck, conspiracy theories never leave out a close encounter of another kind, namely an alien abduction. Five percent of Americans surveyed by by Recon Reason dot com believe that the plane was abducted by aliens. Some bloggers have pointed out a number of recent UFO sightings in Malaysia as evidence of extraterrestrial intervention. Alexander Bruce from Forbidden Knowledge TV proves the involvement of aliens with her analysis of radar data. She claims that footage posted on YouTube shows the presence of something that can only be termed as UFO in the skies over Malaysia. Of course, that means something that is unidentified rather than aliens. The idea that aliens were somehow involved in flight uh, MH370 disappearance was dealt a blow when UFO expert Neil Watson uh, poured scorn uh, on the theory, with an article on the technical, technology and science fiction Omni, the site Omni Media. <laughs> uh, John, with the passage of time, MH370 has joined the ranks of other unsolved aircraft disappearances, which have been associated with UFOs, Watson wrote. These include, he said, Flight pioneer Amelia Earhart, who vanished in 1937, the disappearance of band leader Glenn Miller over the English Channel in 1944, Flight 19, which was five U.S. Navy Avenger torpedo bombers, which went missing over the Bermuda Triangle in 1945, and 20-year-old Australian pilot Frederick Valentich, who went missing during a training flight over Bass Strait in 1978 shortly after he reported being followed by bright lights in the sky. Speculation about such cases being caused by craft occupied by extraterrestrial beings or by elusive sky creatures is nothing new, says Watson, so it's not surprising it has also been applied to the case of the missing Malaysia Airlines plane. Nevertheless, he adds, it is unlikely that aliens were responsible for any of the disappearances, 
And in the case of MH370, there's likely to be a more earthly explanation for its disappearance. The great tragedy of the case is that with the passage of time, the facts are getting increasingly lost and distorted, making the burden for the grieving relatives heavier with each insubstantiated clue or unproven theory, Watson says. Jim? Yeah, Colleen, uh, 9-11 style false flag hijack mission was thought to be a possible reason for MH370 disappearance. No conspiracy is complete without Israeli involvement, and MH370 is no exception. According to this theory, Israeli agents plan to crash the Malaysian airline plane into a building, as in the September 11th attacks, and then blame their property on the ramp. Proponents point to the quick identification of two Iranian nationals traveling on forged passports and claim that the closed-circuit TV television, or as it's known, CCTV, images released of the pair had been doctored. More extravagantly, some have claimed that a Malaysian Airlines Boeing 777, identical to the one that went missing, had been stored in a hangar in Tel Aviv since November 2013. And, of course, we can't leave out the fact that the CIA is behind the disappearance. In a blog post, Malaysia's former Prime Minister, Madhar Mohammed, wrote that he believes the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency must know something about the plane's fate. He also claimed that Boeing, the plane's maker, and certain unnamed government agencies are able to take control of commercial airlines such as the missing Boeing 777, remotely if necessary. Airplanes just don't disappear, he wrote in his blog. Certainly not these days with all the powerful communication systems, radio and satellite tracking, and filmless cameras which operate almost indefinitely and possess huge storage capacities. For some reason, the media will not permit, will not print anything that involves Boeing or the COA. Now, Colleen, do you have another theory? Well, Jim, there's this theory. China, an Edward Snowden Reddit user, Dark Spectre, has a theory that links the disappearance of MH370 with Edward Snowden's revelations about the extent of U.S. surveillance. The theory is based on the fact that the flight was carrying 20 employees of Freescale Semiconductor, a company that may have worked with the NSA to develop surveillance technology, according to Snowden's documents. Dark Spectre writes, we have the American IBM technical storage executive from Malaysia, a man working in mass storage aggregation for the company, implicated by the Snowden papers for providing their services to assist the National Security Agency in surveilling the Chinese. And now this bunch of U.S. chip guys working for a global leader in embedded processing solutions, within embedded smartphone tech and defense contracting, all together on a plane and disappeared. Coincidence? The Reddit sleuth suggests that the apparent disappearance of flight MH370 may actually have been the result of an audacious attempt by China to capture a group of private contractors who helped the NSA to conduct spy operations against them. Honestly, what would 200 lives be to the Chinese intelligence community for the opportunity to find out exactly the depth and scope of our intrusion? Quote from Dark Spectre. 
Don? The last theory we can talk about is that MH370's disappearance is linked to Egypt Air MS-804. Egypt Air Flight MS-804 vanished over the Mediterranean Sea on 19th May, exactly 804 days after MH370 went off the radar on March 7, 2014. A note, conspiracy theorist. The link was first spotted by Twitter user Kevin Andrews, the Daily Express reports, which made a tongue-in-cheek reference to the strange connection. Conspiracy theorists are going to love that one, he wrote. He was correct. It wasn't long before the spooky coincidence was being discussed on message boards across the web. A poster on Robert's uh, conspiracy forum called it incredible, while another hinted the same events which appear related but have no casual connection and was a favorite tool of the powerful people. Not everyone is convinced, however. If you look for these kinds of patterns, sometimes you're going to find them, and the vast majority of the time the patterns will be miscellaneous. The number of connections might be tenuous, but MS-804, the latest in the series of high-profile disappearances in the past few years, which have encouraged an annual, unusual high number of conspiracy theories to crop up. Well, that's the end of our show as far as theories and uh, MH370 and uh, like uh, D.B. Cooper, I guess we'll still be talking about uh, the disappearance <laughs> of this aircraft. Now, I've got some other callers on the uh, board here, so I'm open up all the microphones. I hope we don't ha- hear any obscene uh, callers, but uh, any <laughs> anyone like to put your theory in? Any theories out there? Any discussion? Go on, listeners. Don't be shy. <laughs> well, you know, we've Life got the Halloween life. show coming up here, uh, the the 28th of this month, and always fun to do. Uh, and uh, got some great sound effects and all, and and um, we're going to play that. So hope everybody will listen into that because it's, it's really alien stuff there. But, uh, yeah, it's. A tragedy, and uh, I wish we could have had Christine uh, Negroni with us tonight. And uh, she did; she has been on the show a few times, and she's written a book about this accident. And, and uh, so, so we we don't uh, even know if it was an accident. No. Well, that's right. That's right. Yeah. My my three of the theories would be the. The ones to me that seem more plausible than some of the uh, others that are kind of outlandish, but I think that anything like all the Chinese uh, on board had a lot to do with it, given the fact that they were involved in all kinds of semiconductors. Um, the other one would be when the, the reason for Raza's uh, accident, as they call it, uh, 
Um, and he was one of them that was really investigating the same thing, Habib um, Raza. Um, and the third would be this last one that we just discussed. Um, those are more plausible to me uh, than anything because, let's face it, there are a lot of ways of computer hacking directly into any kind of electronic around, whether in the air, aboard sea, it doesn't matter. Uh, these geeks that are out there are very, very knowledgeable, and it's been shown all over the place. Uh, it's not unusual. Okay, thanks a lot, host. And uh, now, uh, Mike, we have uh, a report. Can you continue? Yeah, we have uh, a few things that happened on this day uh, back in uh, yesteryear. We have uh, new stuff and we have old stuff. Of course, there's uh, we have. Of course, we're going to have a few questions on the Columbus, uh, Christopher Columbus. But uh, before that, uh, back in uh, in 1947, on this day, uh, Charles Elwood Yeager, born in February 13, 1923, he's 96 years old now, better known as Chuck Yeager, he broke the sound barrier in the X-1. And that was at 45,000 feet on that day, and it's remained unbroken. It's They've been trying to fix it ever since. Uh, Chuck in World War II was actually an aircraft mechanic, which... Uh, ended up as a uh, an enlisted uh, he uh, he ended up in the enlisted pilot training program to become a warrant officer and flew uh, a P-51 which was called Glamorous Glenn III which he got most of his kills in and of course he has a very luxurious uh, and very extensive background on his being test pilots for the rockets and all of that stuff from then on and most everybody knows that uh, what his history semi is, but he's a very interesting individual. And at 96 years old, he's still with us, alive and kicking. And uh, today was that day. And of course, we're going to move on, and uh, we have uh, some interesting questions here on uh, what would be the, today's date is uh, for uh, Columbus Day. We got a bunch of questions here coming up. Uh, we have uh, some ten questions on uh, well, on Mike. Go ahead, uh, Neil. Yeah, I'd first of all like to hear. I think we have Mark Porter with us tonight. Mark, are you standing by? Oh yes. Uh, Mark Porter. Hmm. Well, there. yeah, we were going to get try to get a little information on Eastern Three. I guess Mark may not may not be with us. I thought I saw his uh, phone here, but uh, apparently not. So continue on, Mike. You have some questions. Yeah, we have a series of like ten questions that uh, is open for discussion for uh, Columbus Day, and. Uh, the first one would be like, uh, what famous capital is named after Christopher Columbus? Does anybody know the answer to that one? Anybody yes, in the audience or the host? <laughs> Who said that? I voted Tallahassee. Any of our other listeners? Ohio? Yeah, any any listeners? 
What about Columbia? Oh, oh. Is that Norma Jean? It is. Oh, Hi, good to hear Norma. your voice, Norma Jean. Tell us which is well, the... You, uh, you recognize my voice. I did oh, that, yeah. yes. Want to hear it more. Well, <laughs> I listen a lot, but I haven't said anything, you know, lately. You want to answer that first question, Norma Jean? I thought the question was the capital of, uh, and I'm thinking Columbus, Ohio. Yes. Is that the answer, or is it Columbia somewhere? I think Columbia, Columbus Washington. Is what we were looking for, so it would yeah. be Columbus, Ohio. It's Columbia, Columbia Washington. Washington. Right. We didn't say Columbia, Columbia Washington. We didn't say Columbus. Well, a world-famous capital is also known as the District of Columbus. It can't be. It's got to be a country. It is. The capital of this country is D.C. Columbus, Ohio is the capital of... (laughs) Of what? It's not of a country. What famous world world capital capital is named after Columbus? How about Washington, D.C.? Oh, Washington, D.C. Okay. <laughs> Columbia, Washington, down in D.C. District of tough. Columbus. <laughs> yeah. That could be it. Well, okay. Yeah. So we go. We, we can skip on to number two, which was uh, when Columbus Day was made. A, when was it made a uh, first, the first time it was made a federal holiday? Oh. That's definitely good. Unless you look it up. A federal federal holiday in 1937, but initially it was the Congress that um, recognized it, but it was only several years later, and I think it was 1937. Roosevelt Roosevelt made it a federal holiday in 1934. Right. Yeah, well, 1934 was recognized, but it never became a federal Nin- holiday until 1937. Yeah, that's right. Okay, Wikipedia that's, that's, is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> How about three? Well, no, it was right to one extent because it was recognized <laughs> by Congress. But, you know, by the time they recognize it and they put it into being, so to speak, it's not up for a few years later. Surprised they got that done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's go on to the next one. Okay, number number okay. three. How many states do not celebrate Columbus Day? Four. A lot of states. Is there's, uh, there's Four. a ton of them uh, that don't. Uh, I think I mentioned that before when we Miami. were talking. Uh, Colleen, you said four. Yes. No, Alaska. Seven. Alaska's one of them. Seven. Alaska, Florida, Hawaii, Hawaii, Alaska, Vermont, Delaware, South Dakota, New Mexico. Uh, no, New Mexico. Yep. Texas doesn't. Vermont doesn't. Really? Twenty-two uh, states. No. Yeah, Florida, Hawaii, states. Alaska, Vermont, South Washington, Dakota, Washington, New Mexico, doesn't. and Maine. Yep. So their their banks and post offices remain open. There's about 15 of them, if not more, believe it or not. Now, poor old Christopher. Yeah. How about number five? Well, 
Well, let's see. We got number four here still. Which was the first state to recognize Columbus Day? Mississippi. No. <laughs> no Colorado, believe, 1907. Believe it or not, and the only reason I know this was that an Italian immigrant this is pushed true. the legislation in New York yeah. because what's the matter and you? His name was Angelo, and that was my grandfather's name, and that's why I remember it. Uh, that he pushed it to formally recognize it as a holiday. And actually, it didn't become a, a real holiday until, uh, well, they talked about it in 1905. But again, it was another few years before it was finally put in in 1907. And I think Colorado it was, uh, was the first state. Right, I think it was Colorado. Yeah. Okay, right. yes. we got it. We got yeah. the answer. Let's don't okay. give the history. Number five, where is Columbus buried? Besides everywhere. <laughs> Ohio. <laughs> Columbus Berry. Deville. Mississippi. Where? He's buried in Seville. No, he no, was, that's he right. was yes, actually. Yes, that's right. He, he was in Seville. Yeah, he died Santa in Domingo. Spain. You're right. He died in Spain. But no, that, that, is that isn't where his body is buried. They buried him in Seville. And he he's buried. He's kind of Domingo. buried everywhere. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Number six, Mike. Go, Number go six. It's a true or false. Columbus set out to prove the Earth was round. True or false? False. 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 That's false. correct. False. false. <laughs> go to go to China, wasn't it? No. Go to China. Well, it was, he wanted it. Yeah, you're right. He wanted it uh, for different explorations of. Uh, uh, you know, different uh, trades, uh, gears, wares, and all of that. Well, yeah, the right. with, the, with the round earth guy. There you go. All the all gold, all the spices way back then. That's what he wanted. Number seven. Yeah. I Number seven. Columbus. Was, was Columbus the first to cross the Atlantic? Oh, nope. so all the others got lost in the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> <laughs> they wound up in Mississippi. The Viking, the Vikings actually did it the, first. The Vikings, yeah, they were before him. Leif, that Leif, Leif Ever Erickson. Yeah. We used to talk about Leif Ever Erickson in high school being one of the blonde, handsome Scandinavian guys. <laughs> he was a movie right, actor. Number, number no, eight. No, no, number, number eight. Number, what what were the names of the three ships in the Columbus uh, in oh, the was, in the Columbus crossing? That was that's an easy, easy one, yeah. Easy, yeah. Uh, the Nita and the Santa Maria. Nina it was the, the Nina, Pinta, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. Santa Maria, right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Which Don't one? Get right? that one. Okay, and now we get to number nine. Where, when, and which ship? Was wrecked on the voyage. That was Columbus's ship. He That's had right. Santa Maria, the beautiful one. Yeah. It wrecked, but he didn't get killed, though. No. 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 On, on Christmas Eve, 1492, on the north coast as we know it now is Haiti. Haiti, okay. 
Last question. Last question, number 10. When and how did Columbus return to Spain? In chains. What they, well, didn't they? Uh, he didn't he that's correct. Down because he didn't change. That's correct. Yep. Mm-hmm. Fifteen hundred, fifteen, fifteen hundred, and he and he was in chains when they took him back. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, no, he went. He did go back one time, and then they sent him back again here. He did go back after the first year, and then remember he was sent back here again by Isabella, Queen Isabella. I don't know what year that was, but he was sent back a year or two later. That's probably correct. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I did a lot of Wikipediaing on this, so I cheated. Yeah. <laughs> so everybody was right. He should have taken the Concord. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, he, I think Definitely. he came back a year later, and that's when he uh, stepped aboard the San Salvador. I think that's. In fact, I think that's where his body is buried in San Salvador. His body is buried everywhere. Yeah, San Salvador, Hispaniola, or something like that. I agree with Dorothy. I think that's what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot. Appreciate you answering the question. Well, and now, what did you do on that, Columbus Day? Any anyone do anything special today? Did did did, oh, any, I, did any, uh, another question on Columbus? Did anybody know how uh, uh, Staten Island got its name in New York? Herman Staten. Yeah. Well, when Christopher was crossing the Atlantic, he he had a Jewish guy on board, and he had a he had a uh, what do you call it a telescope, and he, he and he was standing on the deck, and he he looked out and he saw this spot of land out there, and he says, "Hey, Christopher, come over here. Is Staten Island?" It's Staten Island. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Mike, where do you come up with this? <laughs> now you know. Now you know where all the out of work comedians go. <laughs> oh my God. They work for Eastern. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's fun. Uh, you must have been fun to fly yeah. with. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! That's okay. Well, that's. That's about all the damage we can do, and uh, let's uh, wind it up here, uh, Dorothy. Uh, what's what's happening here to come? Okay, well, in the future shows. Yeah, well, our, our future shows are really coming up in another uh, pretty good uh, uh, lineup that Neil has. Uh, he has coming up next week is going to be a. The History of Time as it uh, Relates to Navigation. And at first I wondered what kind of a a title is that? What are we going to do about time? And so Neil told me what he was going to do, and it's like, well, that makes sense. Uh, Where did time start? How did it start? And uh, how did it end up in navigation and uh, aircraft? So um, that's a very interesting one that's coming up. And, of course, that's going to be followed um, by our uh, – we're going to have a Halloween show, too, guys. We're going to do the Bermuda Triangle mystery again. And then we'll have uh, 15 behind-the-scenes um, that Neil has come up with. 
Secrets of Airline Pilots, and that's going to be a very uh, informative one. And, of course, now we have our music that we do on Friday, uh, on Thursday afternoon at 3.30. And uh, we have a nice lineup coming up, and Neil has uh, Roberta Flack, and she's uh, the Velvet Smooth Voice that we're going to hear her ballads and her songs are beautiful. So that's going to be our next show, and then Neil has a lineup that looks pretty interesting. So um, that's going to be very nice to hear, and you'll hear Eastern history along with that. So please join us. I want to make note that we are up to 1,030 members as of uh, today, or the 14th to <clears throat> today. The last member is J.L., and he didn't put much information in there, but he is from Cleveland, and he's very interested in airline industry, in particular our Eastern Airlines. The other new member, you heard him uh, talk today on our series tonight, Robert Furster. Uh, He's 82 years old, and he happens to live here in the villages, and Don spoke with him today. He was, uh, he's been a member since October 3rd. He joined us, and he was a pilot for Eastern from 1964 to 1991. He was based at JFK through most of his 27 years with Eastern, which is uh, commendable. He flew the DC-7B, the L-1011, the Beach 727 as a first officer, and the L-1049 as a flight engineer. He captained the L-188 in the B-727, and after Eastern shut down, he went to a number of airlines, Ryanair, Air Aruba, Baltic Airway, Kiwi Airlines, and he retired at the age of 60. But he's a very avid person. He was uh, first officer on the EAL flight, 592 on the B-727, and he and his other two uh, buddy, uh, brothers, actually, Glenn and Greg, they were awarded the Wright Brothers Master Pilot Award in August of 2019 in Chicago. So that was wonderful. And that was at the DuPage International Airport. Um, so he uh, also was given that by the FAA Chicago office. Two different members gave him that award. So that means that they have, uh, between the three of them, he says he has flown 50 or more years without any violations, accidents, or serious incidents happening. And he and his wife, as I mentioned, they live here. They've been married 61 years, mostly now enjoying golf and having a great time. And he has both his sons, Scott Furster, he's the captain of the United Airlines, and son, Keith Furster, is a captain of Southwest Airlines. And even his granddaughter, Mallory Frister, she's a third-generation pilot and, and and a commercial pilot flight instructor for American Flyers in Houston. So he really has a flying history family. So we want to thank him for joining us tonight and for being on our program. We do want to uh, send a thanks to our uh, sponsors and our members who have sponsored us, and in particular, of course, the REPA organization for being one of our main sponsors of the EAL radio show. 
Remember that $40 or more donation will entitle anyone to receive a copy of Neil's book, Wings of Many Free, with their donation. And we want to thank Neil once again for being so generous as to give us these books free to give away to people who have donated $40, and that's commendable from Neil. So uh, we look forward to seeing you again um, next Monday night on the radio and to hearing you on Thursday. We'd love to have more of our uh, members join us on Thursday for our musical and history of Eastern Airlines. It's a great broadcast, and uh, I'm sure you'll love it as much as we do. Back to you, Neil. Well, we have Jim Holder here, and Jim, I want you to tell us about these Reaper luncheons that you guys have in Atlanta, and uh, how can one attend these luncheons, and just what goes on at the uh, Piccadilly, I think it's still being held. Jim, give us a report on your last Reaper luncheon. Yeah, it's it's the uh, second Tuesday of every month at the Piccadilly, right off Old National Highway, just southwest of the airport. And we had a good group turn out, and I believe we are the only one left of all the places that had luncheons and breakfasts and all that kind of stuff, Miami, the, the uh, Florida Panhandle, Washington, they all, I think Charlotte, uh, they've all discontinued. But we're still showing up and telling dirty lies about anybody that's not there. You need to come to, you know, to, to defend yourself. <laughs> But uh, we have a good time. We, we, you know, we had uh, Colonel Waddell last month, uh, the POW for 2,070 days in the Vietnam War, and the biggest crowd we've had in a long time to hear his report. But most of the time, we have about 20 or so show up. We have a good time, and uh, welcome anybody who wants to come. It's the second Tuesday of every month, 11 o'clock, Piccadilly, just southwest of the airport, right off Old National Highway. Hey, Jim, uh, they used to have one down in Miami that was uh, almost uh, as popular as the one that you have there in Atlanta, run by Gene Stevens, I think, was uh, right. conducting yeah. Gene, that luncheon. Gene, I believe Gene's Gene still alive, but I don't, I don't, nobody's heard from him in years, and I don't know of anybody down there. Orlando shut down. The, like I said, the North the Florida Panhandle group shut down. Charlotte, they all uh, New York used to have one once a year, but I hadn't heard that they're doing that anymore. They might, I don't mm-hmm. know. But Atlanta, we just keep showing up. Ain't got anything else to do. Well, you know, there's well, a lot of uh, Reaper people that are doing just what Jim is doing. In addition to the Silver Liners, uh, they're doing. Uh, a lot of uh, lunches together and getting together and have a lot of chapters around the whole United States. And um, we're here on the radio show twice a week. So uh, Eastern Airlines is not gone away by any means, and we're still trying to go along and keep it alive. Well, Colleen, you're here with us tonight. Uh, Anything to report about the Silverliners? Oh, I'm bad about that. Um, <laughs> but they, we we have just opened um, an, one more chapter. A panhandle opened not too long ago, and I'm trying to think where we. If Brenda is listening, she probably remembers where the chapter right, is. Um, um, Jacksonville. I'm trying to think where Dallas. 
I think it might have been Dallas. Yeah, but I think I you're right. I think it was Dallas calling. Yeah, 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 and then and and they've got a few others in the works. I've been trying to work on New Jersey, but trying to get everybody together on one day just to meet and greet is very difficult. Yeah. Uh, we used to have a chapter in New Jersey, and we had maybe 15 people that were interested, but they all are either working or doing something. But we're always looking to open up more chapters, and if there isn't a chapter nearby that you can physically attend a luncheon. They can always join our at-large at chapters, our coast-to-coast -coast chapters, which still keeps them in touch, and they can come to the convention. Next year, the convention is in Tampa, where I am. So uh, it should be a lot of fun. It's a Cuban theme, uh, Cuban night, and, uh, you know, we've got a lot of good things planned. But they can always come to our convention, uh, convention year, and year in between, we have a non-convention year, which we also can all uh, come to. Most of the meetings are in Florida somewhere. Um, but it's, it's a great organization. Each chapter does their own charity work. And uh, we have a lot of fun getting together, meeting old roommates, old flying partners. And they can always contact me or one of our uh, Tampa members uh, to or go online and look up the information and applications, see where our chapters are, and come join us. Right. And we do uh, note the chapters as they uh, let us know that, too, Colleen. Uh, we have one that uh, is the Bulldogs. They have a reunion every year, and their reunion is again this year, November 2nd. Uh, it's still at the House of Terry Gaga, and um, their information is on our website, along with being on that calendar, and we also have the Era Picnic on there, and they're the next day on the 3rd, I think it is. And that, too, is on our calendar under our Era chapter. So uh, anyone can find the information for some of these chapters just by checking our website on the EALRadioShow.com website and just go to the calendar, and they'll be listed there if we have indeed received them. Um, so that's mm -hmm. the thing. You have to let us know. Hey, Neil. Yeah. Neil, listen, I got to apologize. I forgot. Listen, the Chicago Bunch, they are very active up there, uh, and they have a convention over on the Mississippi River. I went to the very first one, and they are still very active. Uh, I don't know what they call themselves, the Chicago Eastern Pilots and whatever, but they are still very active. And also, uh, I got to tell you, the Silver Falcons uh, has our the, the uh, fly-in picnic fly-in at Eagles Landing, uh, right, Williamson, right. Georgia, right there. By I forgot about that outfit, and I've been going to that forever. And right. so that's too still going. Uh, and I apologize for not mentioning them. And they, too, have the silver liners in the Midwest. I saw their advertising in the uh, Keeping in Touch this week. And, uh, of course, uh, they, like the rest of us, are all disheartened with the uh, closing of ERA, uh, supposedly at the end of the year. So um, we want to let everyone know that we are here on our website and can do whatever we can for anyone that needs it. Um, and that's about all you can offer at this point. Back to you, Neil.
Well, I believe we're going to conclude our show for tonight by putting the airplane gently on the asphalt. And let's see if we can get a two or three squeaks out of those tires. Chuck. Great landing, Captain. Be sure to tune in again next Monday, October 21st, when America's favorite way to fly returns to the cyberways. And the radio show takes us to the point separated by time and longitude. This is Chuck Albright signing off on behalf of our hosts, Dorothy Gannigan, Don Gagan, Jim Holder, (laughs) Colleen DeFee, and our producer, Neil Holland playing our new sign-off music, Silver Wings by Merle Haggard. Mr. Producer, take that Good night.